to Fast Asleep. Welcome back to our loyal regulars. Thanks, guys. And welcome to the first-timers. Ah, we're all just looking for something solid to take us far away from our day, from our thoughts. But no ASMR can do that well. It's a waste of time. An exceptional classic tale from an incredibly talented author is what we bring to you each week. And we have her ready for you right now. Fast Asleep listeners have told us how much they love Canada's Alice Munro. At age 82, she became the first woman of Canada to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. There's a lot more to learn about Ms. Monroe. You can check Fast Asleep past episodes for her history and for four more of her wonderful short stories. Married, divorced, and married again, Alice knows well her subject matter for today's story. It is full of plot twists, as you'll hear with part one today and the conclusion on next week's episode. So, here we go. Tuck in, everybody, for what Alice Monroe simply entitled Fiction. driving home after her day teaching music in the Rough River schools. It would already be dark, and on the upper streets of the town, snow might be falling, while rain lashed the car on the coastal highway. Joyce drove beyond the limits of the town into the forest, and though it was a real forest with great Douglas firs, and cedar trees. There were people living in it every quarter mile or so. There were some people who had market gardens, a few who had some sheep or riding horses, and there were enterprises like John's. He restored and made furniture. Also, the services advertised beside the road, and more particular to this part of the world, tarot readings, herbal massage, conflict resolution. Some people lived in trailers. Others had built their own houses, incorporating thatched roofs and log ends. And still others, like John and Joyce, were renovating old farmhouses. There was the one special thing Joyce loved to see as she was driving home and turning into their own property. At this time, many people, even some of the thatched roof people, were putting in what were called patio doors. Even if, like John and Joyce, they had no patio, 
These were usually left uncurtained, and the two oblongs of light seemed to be a sign or pledge of comfort, of safety and replenishment. Why this should be so, more than ordinary windows, Joyce could not say. Perhaps it was that most were meant not just to look out on, but to open directly into the forest darkness, and that they displayed the haven of home. So, artlessly, full-length people cooking or watching television, scenes which beguiled her, even if she knew things would not be so special inside. What she saw when she turned in to her own unpaved, puddled driveway was the set of these doors, put in by John, framing the gutted, glowing interior of their house, the stepladder, the unfinished kitchen shelves, exposed stairs, warm wood, lit up by the light bulb, that John positioned to shine wherever he wanted it, wherever he was working. He worked all day in his shed, and then, when it began to get dark, he sent his apprentice home and started working on the house. Hearing her car, he would turn his head in Joyce's direction, just for a moment, in greeting. Usually his hands would be too busy to wave, sitting there with the car lights off, gathering up whatever groceries or mail she had to take into the house. Joyce was happy even to have that last dash to the door through the dark and the wind and the cold rain. She felt herself shedding the day's work, which was harried and uncertain filled with the dispensing of music to the indifferent, as well as the responsive. Oh, how much better to work with wood and by yourself. She did not count the apprentice. Then with the unpredictable human young, she didn't say any of that to John. He disliked hearing people talk about how basic and fine and honorable it was to work with wood. What integrity that had. What dignity. He would say, crap. John and Joyce had met at an urban high school in a factory city in Ontario. Joyce had the second highest IQ in their class. And John had the highest IQ in the school, and probably in that city. She was expected to turn into a fine performer on the violin. That was before she gave it up for the cello. And he was to become some daunting sort of scientist whose labors were beyond description in the ordinary world. In their first year at college, they dropped out of their classes and ran away together. They got jobs here and there, traveled by bus across the continent 
lived for a year on the Oregon coast, were reconciled at a distance with their parents, for whom a light had gone out in the world. It was getting rather late in the day for them to be called hippies, but that was what their parents called them. <laughs> they never thought of themselves that way. They did not do drugs. They dressed conservatively, though rather shabbily. And John made a point of shaving and getting Joyce to cut his hair. They tired of their temporary minimum wage jobs after a while and borrowed from their disappointed families so that they could qualify to make a better living. John learned carpentry and woodworking, and Joyce got a degree that made her eligible to teach music in the schools. The job she got was in Rough River. They bought this tumble-down house for almost nothing and settled into a new phase in their lives. They planted a garden, got to know their neighbors, some of whom were still real hippies, tending small grow operations deep in the bush and making bead necklaces and herb sachets to sell. Their neighbors liked John. He was still skinny and bright-eyed, egotistical, but ready to listen. And it was a time when most people were just getting used to computers, which he understood and could patiently explain. Joyce was less popular. Her methods of teaching music were thought to be too formalized. Joyce and John cooked supper together and drank some of their homemade wine. John's method of winemaking was strict and successful. Joyce talked about the frustrations and comedy of her day. John mm, did not talk much. He was, for one thing, more involved in the cooking. But when they got around to eating, he might tell her about some customer who had come in or about his apprentice, Edie. They would laugh about something Edie had said, but not in a disparaging way. Edie was like a pet, Joyce sometimes thought, or like a child, though if she had been a child, their child, and had been the way she was, well, they, they might have been too puzzled and perhaps too concerned to laugh. Why? What way? Well, she wasn't stupid. John said she was no genius when it came to woodworking, but she learned and remembered what she was taught. And the important thing was that she wasn't garrulous. That was what he had been most afraid of when the business of hiring an apprentice had come up. A government program had been started. He was to be paid a certain amount for teaching 
the person, and whoever it was would be paid enough to live on while learning. At first, he hadn't been willing, but Joyce had talked him into it. She believed they had an obligation to society. Edie might not have talked a lot, but when she did, it was forceful. I abstain from all drugs and alcohol, was what she told them at her first interview. I belong to AA and I am a recovering alcoholic. We never say we are recovered because we never are. You never are, as long as you live. I have a nine-year-old daughter and she was born without a father, so she is my total responsibility and I mean to bring her up right. My ambition is to learn woodworking so I can provide for myself and my child. While delivering this speech, she sat staring at them, one after the other, across their kitchen table. She was a short, sturdy young woman who did not look old enough or damaged enough to have much of a career of dissipation behind her. Broad shoulders, thick bangs, tight ponytail, no possibility of a smile. And one more thing, she said. She unbuttoned and removed her long-sleeved blouse. She was wearing an undershirt. Both arms, her upper chest, and when she turned around, her upper back were decorated with tattoos. It was as if her skin had become a garment or perhaps a comic book of faces, both leering and tender, beset by dragons, whales, flames, too intricate or maybe too horrid to be comprehended. The first thing you had to wonder was whether her whole body had been transformed in the same way. How amazing, said Joyce, as neutrally as possible. Well, I don't know how amazing it is, but it would have cost a pile of money if I'd had to pay for it, Edie said. That's what I was into at one time. What I'm showing it to you for is that some people would object to it, like supposing I got hot in the shed and had to work in my shirt. Oh, not us, said Joyce, and looked at John. He shrugged. She asked Edie if she would like a cup of coffee. No, thank you. Edie was putting her shirt back on. A lot of people at AA. They just seem like they live on coffee. What I say to them, I say, why are you changing one bad habit for another? Extraordinary, Joyce said later. You feel that no matter what you said, she might give you a lecture. I didn't dare inquire about the virgin 
earth. John said, Well, she's strong. That's the main thing. I took a look at her arms. When John says strong, he means just what the word used to mean. He means she could carry a beam. While John works, he listens to CBC Radio, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Music, but also news, commentaries, phone-ins. He sometimes reports Edie's opinion on what they have listened to. Edie does not believe in evolution. There had been a phone-in program in which some people objected to what was being taught in the schools. Well, why not? Well, it's because in those Bible countries, John said, and then he switched into his firm, monotonous, eady voice. In those Bible countries, they have a lot of monkeys, and the monkeys were always swinging down from the trees, and that's how people got the idea that monkeys just swung down and turned into people. Uh, but, I mean, in the first place, said Joyce, mm -mm, never mind, don't even try. Don't you know the first rule about arguing with Edie? Never mind and shut up. Edie also believed that big medical companies knew the cure for cancer, but they had a bargain with doctors to keep the information quiet because of the money they and the doctors made. When Ode to Joy was played on the radio, she had John shut it off because it was so awful, like a funeral. Also, she thought John and Joyce, well, really Joyce, should not leave wine bottles with wine in them right out in sight on the kitchen table. Oh, that's her business, said Joyce. Mm, apparently she thinks so. When does she get to examine our kitchen table? Well, she has to go through to the toilet. She can't be expected to piss in the bush. I really don't see what business... And sometimes she comes in and makes a couple of sandwiches for us. Oh, so? It's my kitchen. Uh, ours. It's just that she feels so threatened by the booze. She's still pretty fragile. It's a thing you and I can't understand. Threatened. Booze. Fragile. What words were these for Dawn to use? She should have understood. And at that moment, even if he himself was nowhere close to knowing, he was falling in love. <laughs> falling. That suggests some time span, uh, slipping under. But you can think of it as a speeding up, a moment or a second when you fall. Now, John is not in love with Edie. Tick. Now, 
He is. <sighs> no way this could be seen as probable or possible. Unless you think of it as a blow between the eyes, a sudden calamity. The stroke of fate that leaves a man a cripple. The wicked joke that turns clear eyes into blind stones. Joyce set about convincing him that he was mistaken. He had so little experience of women, none except for her. They had always thought that experimenting with various partners was childish. Adultery was messy and destructive. Now she wondered, should he have played around more? And he spent the dark winter months shut up in his workshop, exposed to the confident emanations of Edie. It was comparable to getting sick from bad ventilation. Edie would drive him crazy if he went ahead and took her seriously. Well, I've, I've thought of that, he said. Maybe she already has. Joyce said that was stupid adolescent talk, making himself out to be dumbstruck, helpless. What do you think you are, some knight of the round table? Somebody slipped you a potion? And then she said she was sorry. The only thing to do, she said, was to take this up as a shared program, Valley of the Shadow, to be seen someday as a mere glitch in the course of their marriage. We will ride this out, she said. John looked at her distantly, even kindly. Well, there's no we, he said. How could this have happened? Joyce asks it of John and of herself, and then of others. A heavy striding, heavy-witted carpenter's apprentice in baggy pants and flannel shirts and well, as long as the winter lasted, a dull, thick sweater flecked with sawdust. A mind that plods inexorably from one cliché or foolishness to the next and proclaims every step of the journey to be the law of the land. Such a person has eclipsed Joyce? With her long legs and slim waist and long silky braid of dark hair, her wit and her music, and the second highest IQ. 
I'll tell you what I think it was, says Joyce. This is later on, when the days have lengthened, and the dandles of swamp lilies flame in the ditches. When she went to teach music, wearing tinted glasses to hide eyes that were swollen from weeping and drinking. And instead of driving home after work, drove to Willingdon Park, where she hoped John would come looking for her, fearing suicide. He did that, but only once. I think it was that she'd been on the streets, she said. Prostitutes get themselves tattooed for business reasons, and men are aroused by that sort of thing. I don't mean the tattoos. Well, that too, of course. They're aroused by that too, but I mean the fact of having been for sale. All that availability and experience. Oh, and now, reformed. <sighs> it's your Mary Magdalene. That's what it is. Oh, and he's such an infant sexually. It all, it all makes you sick. She has friends now to whom she can talk like this. They all have stories. Some of them she knew before, but not as she knows them now. They confide and drink and laugh till they cry. They say they can't believe it. Men, what they do, it's so sick and stupid. You can't believe it. That's why it's true. In the midst of this talk, Joyce feels all right. Really, all right. She says that she is actually having moments in which she feels grateful to John because, well, she feels more alive now than ever before. It is terrible, but wonderful. A new beginning. Naked truth. Naked life. But when she woke up at three or four in the morning, she wondered where she was. Not in their house anymore. Edie was in that house now. Edie and her child and John. This was a switch that... Joyce herself had favored, thinking it might bring John to his senses. She moved to an apartment in town. It belonged to a teacher who was on a sabbatical. She woke in the night with the vibrating pink lights of the restaurant sign across the street flashing through her window, illuminating the other teacher's doodads, pots of cacti, dangling cat's eyes, blankets with stripes, the color of dried blood. Mm. All that drunken insight, that exhilaration cast out of her. 
like vomit. Aside from that, she was not hung over. Oh, she could wallow in lakes of alcohol, it seemed, and wake up dry as cardboard, flattened. Her life, gone. A commonplace calamity. The truth was that she was still drunk, though feeling dead sober. Oh, she was in danger of getting into her car and driving out to the house. Not driving into a ditch because her driving at such times became very slow and sedate, but of parking in the yard outside the dark windows and crying out to John that they simply must stop this. Stop this. This is not right. Tell her to go away. Remember, we slept in the field and woke up, and the cows were munching all around us, and we hadn't known they were there the night before. Remember, washing in the ice-cold creek. We were picking mushrooms up on Vancouver Island and flying back to Ontario and selling them to pay for the trip when your mother was sick and we thought she was dying. And we said, what a joke. We're not even druggies. We're on an errand of filial piety. The sun came up and the room's colors began to blare at her in their enhanced hideousness. And after a while, she got up and washed and slashed her cheeks with rouge and drank coffee that she made strong as mud and put on some new clothes. She bought new flimsy tops and fluttering skirts and earrings decked with rainbow feathers. She went out to teach music in the schools, looking like a gypsy dancer or a cocktail waitress. She laughed at everything and flirted with everybody. With the man who cooked her breakfast in the diner downstairs, and the boy who put gas in her car, and the clerk who sold her stamps in the post office. She had some idea that John would hear about how pretty she looked, how sexy and happy, how she was simply bowling over all the men. As soon as she went out of the apartment, she was on a stage, and John was the essential, if second-hand, spectator. Although John had never been taken in by showy looks or flirty behavior, had never thought that was what made her attractive. When they traveled, they had often made do with a common wardrobe, heavy socks, jeans, dark shirts, windbreakers. Another change. Even with the youngest or the dullest children she taught, her tone had become caressing full of mischievous laughter, her encouragement irresistible. She was preparing her pupils for the recital held at the conclusion of the school year. She'd not been 
enthusiastic about this evening of public performance. Not in the past. She had felt that it interfered with the progress of those students who had ability. It shoved them into a situation they were not ready for. All that effort and tension could only create false values. Ah, but this year, she was throwing herself into every aspect of the show. The program, the lighting, the introductions, and of course, the performances. This ought to be fun, she proclaimed. Fun for the students, fun for the audience. Of course, she counted on John's being there. Edie's daughter was one of the performers, so Edie would have to be there. John would have to accompany Edie. Hmm. John and Edie's first appearance as a couple before the town. Their declaration. They could not avoid it. Such switches as theirs, were not unheard of, particularly among the people who lived south of town, but uh, they were not exactly commonplace. The fact that rearrangements were not scandalous didn't mean they didn't get attention. There was a necessary period of interest before things settled down and people got used to the new alliance, as they did and the newly aligned partners would be seen chatting with, or at least saying hello to, the cast-offs in the grocery store. But this was not the role Joyce saw herself playing, watched by John and Edie. Well, really, by John, on the evening of the recital. What did she see? God knows. She did not, in any sane moment, think of impressing John so favorably that he would come to his senses when she appeared to take the applause of the audience at the end of the show. She did not think his heart would break for his folly once he saw her happy and glamorous and in command rather than moping and suicidal. But something not far off from that, something she couldn't define, but couldn't stop herself hoping for. It was the best recital ever. Everybody said so. They said there was more verve, more gaiety, yet more intensity. The children costumed in harmony with the music they performed. Their faces made up so they did not seem so scared and sacrificial. When Joyce came out at the end, oh, she wore a long black silk skirt that shone with silver as she moved. Also silver bangles and glitter in her loose hair. Some whistles mingled with the applause. John and Edie were not in the audience.
Joyce and Matt are giving a party at their house in North Vancouver. This is to celebrate Matt's 65th birthday. Matt is a neuropsychologist who was also a good amateur violinist. That is how he met Joyce, now a professional cellist, and his third wife. Ah, look at all the people here, Joyce keeps saying. It's positively a life story. She is a lean, eager-looking woman with a mop of pewter-colored hair and a slight stoop, which may come from coddling her large instrument or simply from the habit of being an obliging listener and a ready talker. There are Matt's colleagues, of course, from the college, the ones he considers his personal friends. He is a generous but outspoken man, so it stands to reason not all colleagues fall into that category. There is his first wife, Sally, accompanied by her caregiver. Sally's brain was damaged when she was in a car accident at the age of 29, so... It is unlikely that she knows who Matt is or who her three grown sons are or that this is the house she lived in as a young wife. But her pleasant manners are intact and she is delighted to meet people even if she has met them already 15 minutes before. Her caregiver is a tidy little Scotswoman who explains often that she is not used to big noisy parties like this and that she doesn't drink while on duty. Matt's second wife, Doris, lived with him for less than a year, though she was married to him for three. She is here with her much younger partner, Louise, and their baby daughter, whom Louise bore a few months ago. Doris has stayed friends with Matt, and especially with Matt and Sally's youngest son, Tommy, who was small enough to be in her care when she was married to his father. Matt's two older sons are present with their children and their children's mothers, though one of the mothers is no longer married to that father. He is accompanied by his current partner and her son, who's got into a fight with one of the bloodline children overturns on the swing. Tommy has brought along for the first time his lover named Jay, who has not yet said anything. Tommy has said to Joyce that Jay is not used to families. Oh, I feel for him, says Joyce. There was actually a time when I wasn't either. <laughs> she is laughing. She has hardly stopped laughing as she explains the status of the official and outlying members of what Matt calls the clan. She herself has no children, though she does have an ex-husband, John, who lives up the coast in a mill town that has fallen on evil days. She invited him to come down for the party, but he could not come. His third 
wife's grandchild was being christened on that day. Of course, Joyce had invited the wife, too. Her name is Charlene, and she runs a bake shop. She had written a nice note about the christening, causing Joyce to say to Matt that she can't believe John could have got religion. Oh, I do wish they could have come, she says, explaining all this to a neighbor. Neighbors have been invited, so there won't be any fuss about the noise. Then I could have had my share in the complications. There was a second wife, but I, I have no idea where she has got to. I don't believe John has either. There is lots of food that Matt and Joyce have made and that people have brought, oh, and lots of wine and children's fruit punch, and a real punch that Matt has concocted for the occasion in honor of the good old days, he says, when people really knew how to drink. He says he would have made it in a scrubbed-out garbage can the way they did then, but uh, nowadays everybody would be too squeamish to drink that. Most of the young adults leave it alone anyway. The grounds are large. There is croquet, if people want to play, and the disputed swing from Matt's own childhood that he got out of the garage. Most of the children have seen only park swings and plastic play units in the backyard. Matt is surely one of the last people in Vancouver to have a childhood swing handy and to be living in the house he grew up in a house on Windsor Road on the slope of Grouse Mountain on what used to be the edge of the forest. Now, houses keep climbing above it, most of them castle affairs with massive garages. One of these days, this place will have to go, Matt says. The taxes are monstrous. Hmm, it will have to go, and a couple of hideosities will replace it. Joyce cannot think of her life with Matt happening anywhere else. Oh, there's always so much going on here. People coming and going and leaving things behind and picking them up later, including children. Matt's string quartet in the study on Sunday afternoons. The Unitarian Fellowship meeting in the living room on Sunday evenings. Green Party strategy being planned in the kitchen. The play reading group emoting in the front of the house. While somebody spills out the details of real-life drama in the kitchen. Joyce's presence required in both locations. Matt and some faculty colleague hammering out strategy in the study with the door closed. She often remarks that she and Matt are seldom alone together, except in bed, and then he'll be reading something important while she is reading something unimportant. Never mind. There is some large conviviality and appetite he carries with him that she may need. 
even at the college, where he is involved with graduate students, collaborators, possible enemies and detractors, he seems to move in a barely managed whirlwind. All this once seemed to her so comforting. And probably it still would, if she had time to look at it from outside. She would probably envy herself from outside. People may envy her, or at least admire her, thinking, oh, she matched him so well with all her friends and duties and activities, and of course her own career as well. You would never look at her now and think that when she had first come down to Vancouver, she was so lonely that she had agreed to go out with the boy from the dry cleaner, who was a decade too young for her. Oh, and then he had stood her up. Now, she's walking across the grass with a shawl over her arm for old Mrs. Fowler, the mother of Doris, the second wife and late-blooming lesbian. Mrs. Fowler can't sit in the sun, but she gets shivers in the shade. And in the other hand, she carries a glass of freshly made lemonade for Mrs. Gowan, the on-duty companion of Sally. Mrs. Gowan has found the children's punch too sweet. She does not allow Sally to have anything to drink, where she might spill it on her pretty dress or throw it at somebody in a fit of playfulness. Sally does not seem to mind the deprivation. On the journey across the lawn, Joyce skirts a group of young people sitting in a circle. It's Tommy and his new friend and other friends. She's often seen them in the house. Oh, and others she does not believe she has ever seen at all. She hears Tommy say, No, I am not Isadora Duncan. They all laugh. She realizes that they must be playing that difficult and snobby game that was popular years ago. Now, what was that called? She thinks the name started with a B. She would have thought they were too anti-elitist nowadays for any such pastime. Bucks to Huda, she has said it out loud. You're playing Bucks to Huda. (laughs) You got the bee right anyway, says Tommy, laughing at her so that the others can laugh. See, he says, my belle mare, she ain't so dumb, but she's a musician. Wasn't Buxta Huda a musician? Buxta Huda walked 50 miles to hear Bach play the organ, says Joyce in a mild huff. Yes, a musician, Tommy says. Hot damn. A girl in the circle gets up, and Tommy calls to her. Hey, Christy, Christy, aren't you playing anymore? I'll be back. I'm just going to hide in the bushes with my filthy cigarette. This girl is wearing a short, frilly black dress that makes you think of a piece of lingerie or a nightie and a severe but low-necked little black jacket. Wispy, pale hair, evasive, pale face, invisible eyebrows, 
Joyce has taken an instant dislike to her. The sort of girl, she thinks, whose mission in life is to make people feel uncomfortable. Tagging along, Joyce thinks she must have tagged along to a party at the home of people she doesn't know but feels a right to despise. <laughs> because of their easy, shallow, cheer, and their bourgeois hospitality. Oh, do people say bourgeois anymore? It's not as if a guest couldn't smoke anywhere she wants to. There aren't any of those fussy little signs around, even in the house. <sighs> Joyce feels a lot of her cheer drained away. Tommy, she says abruptly, Tommy, would you mind taking this shawl to Grandma Fowler? Apparently she's feeling chilly. Oh, and the lemonade is for Mrs. Gowan. You know, the person with your mother. No harm in reminding him of certain relationships and responsibilities. Tommy is quickly and gracefully on his feet. Botticelli, he says, relieving her of the shawl and the glass. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to spoil your game. Yeah, we're no good at it anyway, says a boy she knows, Justin. We're not as smart as you guys used to be. Ah, used to be is right, says Joyce, at a loss for a moment as to what to do or where to go next. They are washing dishes in the kitchen. Joyce and Tommy and the new friend, Jay. The party is over. People have departed with hugs and kisses and hearty cries. Some bearing platters of food that Joyce has no room for in the refrigerator. Wilted salads and cream tarts and deviled eggs have been thrown out. Few of the deviled eggs were eaten anyway. Old-fashioned. Too much cholesterol. Too bad. They were a lot of work. They probably reminded people of church suppers, says Joyce, tipping a platterful into the garbage. Huh, my grandma used to make them, says Jay. These are the first words he has addressed to Joyce, and she sees Tommy looking grateful. She feels grateful herself, even if she has been put in the category of his grandmother. Well, we ate several, and they were good, says Tommy. He and Jay have worked for at least half an hour alongside her, gathering glasses and plates and cutlery that were scattered all over the lawn and veranda and throughout the house. Even the most curious places, such as flower pots and under sofa cushions. The boys, she thinks of them as boys, have stacked the dishwasher more skillfully than she in her worn out state could ever manage, and prepared the hot soapy water and cool rinse water in the sinks for the glasses. Yeah, we could just save them for the next load in the dishwasher, Joyce has said. But Tommy has said, 
No, you wouldn't think of putting them in the dishwasher if you weren't out of your right mind with all you had to do today. Jay washes and Joyce drives and Tommy puts away. He still remembers where everything goes in this house. Out on the porch, Matt is having a strenuous conversation with a man from the department. Apparently, he's not so drunk as the plentiful hugs and prolonged farewells of a short time ago would indicate. Well, quite possibly I am not in my right mind, says Joyce. At the moment, my gut feeling is to pitch this all out and buy plastic. Eh, post-party syndrome, says Tommy. We know all about it. Say, who was that girl in the black dress, says Joyce, the one who walked out on the game. And there is so much to learn, especially about that girl. Please don't miss the conclusion next week of Alice Munro's Fiction. Good night.